John chapter 13, verse 1 through 20. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He, Peter, said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. It's our text for today. It's a familiar text. And there's a lot to be gained about who Jesus is. So the first question of the day is, what is Jesus Christ like? What's he like? Like, for example, if a small child, two, three, four-year-old, who maybe your own child that you're talking to about Jesus regularly, says, what is he like? What comes into your mind? The world's got a lot of distorted views, and we all have a lot of distorted views about what he's like. But he's a real person. He's a real man with a real personality, a real soul. So what was he like? Is he mainly angry? Is he only love so that our sins don't matter? Is he holiness only and you can't come close? What is he like? What comes into your mind when you think about his person? Or, you know, Roger Sawyer asked us to pray about folks in Ecuador who had never heard uh, about Jesus at all. And so I imagine when you get there, you start very basic, and they want to know what he's like. And what would you tell them? What would be the first thing that you would say? It's hopefully one of the things that we'll get deeper into from today's text. The Word of God lets us see right down into what he's like. The things that he says and the things that he did and the circumstances that he did them in just seem impossible that he would do them. But they tell us about who he is and what he's like and then the way that we can relate to him and the way that he thinks about us and treats us. That's part of today's aim. It is okay to believe that Jesus loves you. That's not presumptuous. He says that he loves you. 
and he does. And it's okay to act like he loves you and to live your life basking in his love. And so in our grace group a couple of weeks ago, we were, I'm not sure which verse we were on. There was, I think it was 1 John 4.16. It says, we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. We've come to know it and believe it, which is kind of like saying, we really do believe it and we live like it and we just soak it up all the time. So I asked our group, what about us? Do we live every day? You think about your life. Do you live your day every day believing that he just loves you? And that makes your heart glad and you're happy and you love him back. Or is it something else that we have slipped into that's not a real picture of reality? Do we have bad views about him? What's he really like? One of the things that was really encouraging to me from our first John study is the phrase that the love of God has been perfected in us. And there's three times that that's said in first John. I'm going to read them to you briefly. Chapter two, verse five says, whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. So you could flip it the other way around and you could say, when the love of God is perfected in Dan Reisman, it does something to him and he loves people. But it says here, he keeps his word. The next one, 1 John four twelve. if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So again, it's producing a result, outward obedience. In 1 John four seventeen, the last one, it says by this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. The love of God being perfected in a person produces confidence in the day of judgment. You can see how that would be. So the implication there is the sweet part that for the love of God to be perfected in you, you've got to know yourself to be loved by him. If you just know it in your brain and you don't relate to him as a father who just loves you, it won't be perfected in you because it's not real to you. There's a result that's meant to happen. Like 1 John 4, 16 says, we have come to know and believe the love which God has for us. So a good question, you could look at it negatively and you could think about your life and, you know, your Christian life, your sanctification, maturity in the faith, growth, the things that we're all wanting. We want to know God more. We want to grow. We want to be sanctified. We want to live more and more holy lives. We want to defeat sin. And I think it's a fair question to say, could the sum of the lack of growth or fruit or defeating of sin that we experience in the Christian life be related to not embracing wholeheartedly the great love of God for us? I think the answer is yes, it can, and it is. And we don't rejoice that he loves us all the time. We're stunted. It's not being perfected in us, and so we don't love, we don't keep his commandments. On and on you go. And in thinking about preparing this sermon, uh, you know, you get to pick whatever verses you want when you only preach one time. And so I picked this verse, these verses on purpose because, um, especially for Grace Church, for the people in the congregation, the members of the church, I want you to know yourself loved by God, not just in your brain. I want you to, we know feelings aren't trustworthy, but you should feel it sometimes. That's okay to feel loved by God. And I want you to know it and feel it and live like it and rejoice in it and relate to him that way. So that's what the verse is for. One of the things that has burdened me to want to preach a sermon like this one is sometimes in prayer meeting, it sounds sort of like we're a room full of people who still have all our sins. Not always, but it's there. There should be freedom and deliverance. And we need to embrace his love for us. And part of the issue I believe we'll talk about towards the end of the sermon is the difference between conviction and condemnation because they can feel kind of similar and we get confused, but they're not the same. Self-condemnation is different than the Holy Spirit's conviction. So... To put those two pieces together, not understanding what Jesus is really like 
causes us not to believe and rejoice in the love of God for us. If we knew what he was really like, his heart, his person, I think we would rejoice in his love for us more, more easily, or we'd be glad about it. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at John 13. We're going to get to it now. I just read it, and normally we've been preaching through Hebrews, most of you know, for a good while now, and we're just plopping down right in the middle of another book of the Bible, and so it's wise to have some setting, some context where we at. John 13 occurs at the very end of Jesus' ministry. It's right before he dies. And more immediately, it's right after John 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and that creates a huge scene. Everybody knows about it, and a lot of people are following him, and the religious leaders are getting angry about it, so things are a little volatile. It's in Jerusalem. It's where it takes place. After uh, John 12, 19, the rulers say, You see that you're not doing any good. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So things are stirred up. And people don't know what's coming. They think he might take power. The disciples are always getting the wrong idea. The religious leaders certainly think he's going to take power away from them. And we know his kingdom is not of this world. But that's where we're at. Verse 1 of our text tells us that the setting is now before the feast of the Passover. So the Passover is the yearly festival instituted by God to celebrate his redemption from Egypt, slaying the firstborn son, so they slay the lamb. And Jesus, after reading through our Luke study, you start to see how wise he is, and he understands everything, and he knows full well he is the Passover lamb who's going to be sacrificed. And then he's going to attend a feast about his own death. And then last, for context, it's right before his own betrayal. You can look at the end of our chapter, and then onwards... Judas leaves to betray him. He goes away. Satan put it in his heart, and he leaves. Jesus sends him away, actually. So why foot washing? Why did he wash their feet? Is that a new idea? Are there any other instances of the Bible, in the Bible, of anyone else washing another person's feet? What's it about? Why did he do it? It's a pretty good chunk of Scripture right before his death devoted to the washing of the disciples' feet. So... He has an aim in mind, and we're going to look. I want you to look at verse 20 of chapter 13. Put your eyes on the verse. What's, why is he washing their feet? What's he ultimately after? The verse says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. The verse seemed at first a little bit out of context to me. I had a hard time placing why that verse is in the chapter. It seems unusual. I think what he's doing is... By washing their feet and telling him the things that he told them, he's preparing a people that he can send out who will be faithful and accurate ambassadors of who he is. Because that's what he says there. He who receives whomever I send, meaning the people's feet he just washed, they receive me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. So he's trying to create a people by what he's doing and he's going to send them out. And he wants them to be a certain way. And you can see briefly in verse 15, it says, I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. And then he's going to send them out, which is what he does after he's raised from the dead. So that's what he's after. He's trying to do something to them. And then you can ask yourself the question. He's trying to make them different. Why then did he not just tell them to be humble and to serve people, and to wash their feet, and to be a certain way? And the answer is obvious. It's that telling them wouldn't have been impactful enough to them. He showed them. He wanted them to feel what it was like to sit and to have their own feet scrubbed clean by a person who didn't, they didn't deserve to have their feet washed by. He was trying to impact them. And that's our goal for today's sermon too. We want to be changed. We want to have an encounter with him. We want to get close to him and feel what it is to have him wash us so that then we'll be different also. So, you could put that same thing negatively and say, if you, as a Christian, don't let him wash you every day, you won't be any different. It's like what I was saying before about love being perfected in us. You've got to be 
interacting with him this way and you'll be changed. You'll be different. You won't be the same. So the last question before we get right into the text is, is foot washing about dirt and feet mainly? Or is it something more important than dirt and feet? Is it more than that? And the answer, of course, is yes. But as I was preparing today, I could always just assumed that that answer was yes. But why from the text? How do we know from the text that he's not just washing their feet? And there's more meaning to it. I think the most clear part is in the word part. If you look at verse 8, he tells Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. The word part can be used really simply like parts of an outer garment. When they crucified him, they divided the parts of his garment, just parts of things, pieces. Or there's three, t- three other times that the Apostle John uses the word part, and they're in Revelation. I'm going to read them to you. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. They have a part in the resurrection. But for the next one, it's Revelation 21.8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And the next one is Revelation twenty two nineteen, And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. So the word part doesn't mean, in, when Jesus says it, a part of something. It means, you can't have anything to do with me if I don't wash you. You've got to get away from me. You can't come unless I wash your feet. So it seems unlikely that he would say that if it was mainly about foot washing. There's got to be something more to it about the way that we relate to him. And ultimately, the answer is that it's about the forgiveness of our sins and his cleansing us of our sins. There's a couple other brief ways that you can know it's not just about dirt and feet. And one of the ways that you can see it is that there's so many parallels between the washing of feet and the washing of our sins. And even the same language is shared, like in Titus 3, the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Or Ephesians 5, so that you might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So it's plainly about sin and our sin and the way that we relate to him. The whole Bible, the context in the New Testament is plainly that the reason we can't come close to Jesus and we can't come close to God initially is because of our sin. It's the problem. It's the reason he came to die on the cross is for sins, not for dirt. So point labored and hopefully clear. Let's look at the first three verses. They are a string of things that John wants us to know that Jesus knew. And I can't think of any other verses in the entire Bible that are even remotely similar to the ones here. They say, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Here it is again. What did he know? Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. He washed their feet. So what's going on? It's, it's setting. God's setting the scene for us, and he's just listing off a string. There's eight of them, if you count them all. Uh, eight things that he had in his mind before he washed their feet. And why would it, We know that the Holy Spirit's the author of Scripture. Why would the Holy Spirit... Spirit want us to know the things that Jesus knew in his brain before he washed their feet. And when you look at them, the answer is plain. It's because the things that he knew about himself were unbelievable. He knew exactly who he was. He knew about all of his infinite exaltation and his authority and his rule. He also knew he was soon to be crucified and raised from the dead. He knew all of this. And what he wants you to see is, even though he knew that, He washed their feet with his hands. And a good question to ask yourself when you come upon a string of verses like this one is, you know, John said himself that if everything that Jesus did had been written down, even the world itself couldn't contain the books that were written. And God chose to include these 20 verses. 
So why are they in there? And more specifically, why the first three verses? Why are they in there? And it's to help you see what he's like. I asked the question in the beginning, what is Jesus really like? And the fact that these are in the Bible is evidence from God that he wants you to know that Jesus is capable of being exalted and loving sinful people at the same time. God wants you to know that. That's why he put it in here. Another thing that I found really helpful as I was preparing is that the things, the eight things that are listed there are not things that John had some sort of secret mystical view into the mind of Jesus. All of them can be found coming out of Jesus' mouth in surrounding chapters. I never knew that. But he's just taking things from over here in chapter 12 and 16 and 14, and he's saying, remember Jesus said this. So he knew all of this. And then he washed their feet. So we're going to look at them one by one, and I want us to notice at least that they were things that Jesus had said himself, but also to see how great the things were that he knew about himself so we can get a picture of who we're talking about who's washing feet. The first thing he says that he knew, I already mentioned Passover, but the next one, he knew that his hour had come that he would depart out of this world to the Father. And lots of you are probably familiar with the multiple times that people would interact with Jesus and he would say to them, my hour has not yet come. We started noticing that in our John study that we had, our Teleos John study. Um, I guess now that was a couple of years ago. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. It's not here. It's not here. It's not here. And then now finally, the first time he says it is in chapter 12. You can look over one page. It's verse 23. It says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Skip down. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So he knew he was right at the climax. He was about to die. He was about to be crucified. He knew that. Next thing, it said there, it doesn't say Jesus knowing, but I think it's fair to assume that he knew, is the words, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The word to the end is the same word from Hebrews 7.25. He can save to the uttermost the same word. It means all the way to the end, as big and as full as you can get, all the way up. He loved them to the end, to the uttermost. So he says in John 15, verse 12 and 13, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. And then he says it here. Sounds like to the uttermost to me. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So he knew that they loved, that he loved them well. And he knew that it meant that he was going to die on the cross because he said that one laid down his life for his friends. The next one pointed, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. So did Jesus know all along, we said before, three years, he had disciples for three years. Did he know all along that Judas was going to betray him, or did it come as a surprise toward the end? Because they traveled together, they slept in the same area, they were companions. They didn't have a home that they stayed in, but they just lived for three years, all 12 of them, traveling around together. So he was with them, he ate with them. I imagine the campfire scene when you see the folks sleeping around a campfire and one eye sleeping with one guy open looking at the other eyes. This was He was with Judas for three years. And the answer is that he did know that Judas would betray him because John six sixty four says, Jesus knew from the beginning they who, who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And you can even look in our text. Verse 11 says, for he knew the one who was betraying him. In verse 18, I know the ones whom I have chosen. And we'll see in a minute that he washed, it really seems like from the text, I think it's pretty watertight, he washed the feet of Judas Iscariot, the man who was 
imminently going to betray him. He got on his knees and he scrubbed the dirt off his feet. We'll see it in a minute. The next one is that the father had given all things into his hands. He had all authority. Matthew eleven twenty seven. all things have been handed over to me by my father. And I know we're going through a list, so we'll have an example now of what uh, men normally do with authority. We remember the story of Gideon from the Old Testament, from Judges. Gideon was a man. He was a judge in Israel. He had a lot of uh, military might. He was in charge of an army. And I looked this morning, and we know the story. He originally had 32,000 soldiers that he was going to go to battle with. And it's a famous story where God says, it's too many. You can't have that many. And so through a series of chopping off people, he starts sending people home. People keep leaving. And it gets way down from 32,000 all the way down to 22,000. But then further and further and further, it gets all the way down to 300 men. That's Gideon. Well, Gideon had 70 sons by different wives, concubines. 70 of them. One of Gideon's sons was named Abimelech. So when Gideon dies, there's a question about who's going to be in power to rule over the people. They would all like to be king, or they could all share all the authority and be king together, and no one knows what's going to happen. And Abimelech is a pretty sly fella. He's pretty savvy. So he figures out a way that he can get all the power himself. And what he does, what you need to understand first is that Abimelech is from a place called Shechem. And the rest of the brothers are not from there. They're from different places. Remember I said different wives. So he's from a certain place called Shechem. And what he says to all the people of Shechem, here's what he says. Speak now in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem. Which is better for you, that 70 men, all the sons of Jeroboam, which is Gideon, rule over you, or that one man rule over you? Also, remember that I am your bone and your flesh. He's trying to weasel his way into power. So what happens? They gave him 70 piece of silver, pieces of silver, and Judges 9.4 says about the silver with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows, and they followed him. Then he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Gideon, 70 men on one stone, excluding one named Jotham who got away. So they made Abimelech king, and he had his power. He had his authority. And we got to this story because it says that the father had given all things into the hand of Jesus. And so what a sinful man does when he gets hold of authority and wants power is he kills his own brothers on a single stone to take it. And the point that's trying to be made by the verse is that Jesus knew that he had all authority over all things. He says in John 16, 15, Jesus said, all things that the Father has are mine. Everything. And what he does with his authority imminently in the context that the verse is given is he gets down, he takes off his clothes, he puts on a towel and he takes nasty feet and he scrubs them with a towel that he's got around his waist. This is what he's like. Remember I asked before what he's like? Who can do that with a glad heart. He's humble. He's meek. He's lowly. He serves wicked people. He doesn't want to hold on to authority and use it to his own advantage. It's the famous Philippians 2. Although he existed in the form of God, he didn't consider it. He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't take hold of it. And that's how he can love you is because he's like that. To finish the story of Abimelech, what happened to him is he was in another battle after he had already become king. And he was, you know, you picture these old cities with their high walls, barriers, so people can't get in. And there was a woman on the top of the wall, and she threw a stone off the wall. And it landed, and it crushed Abimelech's head. Crushed his skull, is what the scriptures say. And he knew he was going to die, and he was prideful, and he did not want his legacy to be that he was killed by a woman. So he had his sword bearer running through with his sword and kill him that way. So you can see in perfect picture, God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. The exaltation of Jesus. Just to finish the last of the strings of things that Jesus knew, said he had come forth from God 
And over and over and over again, you can read, especially in the Gospel of John, he uses the fact that he came from God as evidence of the authenticity of the words he was saying and who he said he was. The fact that he came from God meant that he had authority and he ought to be listened to. So John 8, 48 says, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Because he came from God, that means that if anyone else knows God, they must also love him, because God cares about him. The last one, he was going back to God. And just briefly, John 4.12 and verse 28, Jesus says, quote, I go to the Father. So it's just a list of things that Jesus had said other places that he knew were true about himself. So again, all the things that are in verses 1 through 3 are not primarily for information because they're repeated. They're said elsewhere. So if God wanted, to, wanted us to just have information about things, who Jesus was, he wouldn't have gathered them together in a string and said, Jesus knew this, 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 this. And he wants you to worship Jesus by tasting who he is and seeing the way that he is and the things that he knew about himself and then what he did. So we're going to move on. Verse 4, you can call it the act, what he did. I'm going to read it twice. He got up from supper, and he laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. I'm going to read it again. Use what has been previously called your sanctified imagination. Picture it. He got up from supper and he laid aside his garments. And taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. He had all authority and he got on his knees and he put a towel around his waist and then he stretched out some of that towel and grabbed hold of their feet and would scrub the dirt off of them. And it must have taken quite a while. There's 12 of them. And it says in verse 12, so when he had washed their feet, sounds like all of their feet. D.A. Carson said in his commentary that there's no other record that can be found around the time of Jesus of a person who is considered a superior or in a higher position of authority or dignity or honor ever washing the feet of someone who would be considered lower on the totem pole. Nobody ever did it but him. He's the only one. And it's in here because we're supposed to see that there's nobody like him. So for context, I said before, is foot washing anywhere else in the Bible? And the answer I was surprised to find out in preparation for today is yes. There are other people who have washed feet in the Bible. There's the one in the New Testament that we'll get to. The woman washes Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears. But even in the Old Testament, there are examples of people washing the feet of other people. So the first one occurs in Genesis 18. Abraham, he's at the Oaks of Mamre. And the three men come. And it's right before Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham who Hebrews calls the patriarch as one with authority, turns into someone who seems like a servant, who's scrambling around trying to serve these men. So here's what it says. When he saw them, Abraham, when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little be water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree and I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may go on since you have visited your servant. So they agree and he runs and he goes and talks to Sarah and he tells his servants to get a tender and choice calf and they slaughter it and they prepare it for the men and he tells Sarah to get curds and milk. So he's just busting his back trying to serve these people and because he knew it was not just regular men, you can read the rest of the story, but he turns into a servant and part of the Uh, service, the humbling himself and serving the men is washing their feet. 
So it is what you'd imagine. It's humble service to people you view as higher than yourself. Genesis 19 is the next one, next chapter. The men show up to Lot in Sodom. And part of Lot's hospitality to them is to have their feet washed. It doesn't say that they did it. He says to them, come in and wash your feet. And you know the rest of the story. They end up, the folks from the town end up probably stopping that short. Again, Genesis 43, 26. This is a good one. You know the story about Joseph. His brothers sell him into slavery and he goes and he ends up becoming the uh, second only to Pharaoh in Egypt. He's got all the power, all the authority. And his brothers, God's sovereign, there's a famine. Joseph's now got all the food. They come and they're groveling to him for food. They don't know it's him. He sends them back. He hides a cup in their uh, luggage, so to speak. And uh, they're guilty. They're terrified. They come back. They go back again. They go back and get Benjamin. It's a long, drawn-out story. But at one point in there, Joseph, he knew that the brothers were who they were. See if this sounds like Jesus. He knew who he was. He knew they had betrayed him. He knew they were wrong. He knew he had authority to kill them. Could have done it. He knew all that. And at one point, he brings them in. It's when he gives them the feast that you're familiar with, probably. He tells the servants, prepare him a big feast. And Benjamin's there. Benjamin gets a five times the size portion. And he tells the servants, wash their feet. Does that sound like Jesus? He knew what he could have done. And Joseph says, wash their feet. But Jesus is better than Joseph. Because Joseph tells his servants to wash the feet of his brothers. And Jesus gets on his knees himself and scrubs their feet. There's one more. Judges 19, there's a story about a certain Levite and an old man. And it's a long story with... It's a graphic and gory story. But when the Levite comes to stay with the old man, the old man wants to wash his feet. So... Without laboring the point, you get the idea. It happened in the Old Testament that people washed other people's feet. And usually it happened as a way of being a servant, putting yourself in servitude to a person who you viewed as having more authority or more honor or dignity than you. But it didn't happen that somebody with more authority washed the feet of people who did not have authority or honor. So another one that seems fitting that we're familiar with is Luke 7, the woman who's called a sinner which means probably overtly immoral. Certainly overtly immoral. Washes his feet. And the language of this is worth reading. It says that she was a sinner. She had an alabaster vial of perfume. Use your imagination again. She stood behind him at his feet. And she was weeping. So much so that she began to wet his feet with her tears. Lots of tears. And so much so that she could take her hair, grab hold of it, sounds like grabbing the towel off your waist, and scrub his feet with her tears. And then she started kissing his feet, which by that point were wet. And she started anointing them with the perfume from the alabaster vial. So this was a repentant woman who had been loved and forgiven by Jesus. And in the spirit of today's sermon, she knew she was sinful and she didn't run away. She came and she loved him. But this one seems natural and it seems right and it seems what we would expect, right? You read that story and you're not surprised because here she is and she's sinful and Jesus has loved her and she's humbling herself and she's scrubbing his feet, which seems normal. And it is. But what Jesus did doesn't seem normal to us. And we'll see in a minute Peter objected because for us it seems uncomfortable and it seems unusual. It doesn't seem right. But our view of right is all backwards. So he washed their feet. You can see it. And I said before that Jesus washed the feet of Judas Iscariot, knowing who he was. Verse 5 says he began to wash the disciples' feet. Verse 12 says when he had washed their feet. And it seems, too, like if he had not washed Judas's feet, people would not probably have been so confused about who was going to betray him. But the application that I'm trying to make is that because he is of such a character, because his heart is such that he did what he did, he's trying to communicate to you that though you are dirty, it's not wrong for him to get on his feet and scrub you. 
It's not wrong, ultimately, I said before, to go and march up Calvary and have his hands pinned to a cross and hang on a piece of wood and taste all your sins and taste death and die. It's his glory that he would do this. It doesn't dishonor him. This is the glory of the Son of God. It's what in Philippians 2, God infinitely exalted him for is his lowliness. Another thing you can see that is so helpful about the heart of Jesus is we know a lot of good and excellent truth about positional righteousness. Positional righteousness means for God to accept us, we must be 100% righteous and perfect. That's true. We can't come close unless we're perfect. So Christ dies for our sins and they're gone and he's raised from the dead and we get all his righteousness because he can give it because he's alive. And that's true. You can't come close unless you're righteous. But what is confusing for us sometimes is that God can still love a person who is not yet positionally righteous. So if you read Ephesians 2.4, here's what it says. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. He loved us when we were sinful. Not, the order is not backwards. It's not that he made us totally righteous and then began to love us. He loved us when we were sinful. Ephesians 5, 8 says the same thing. The love of God is manifest by this God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I'm not saying that he can accept you without being righteous, because that's not true. But he is of such a character that he can set his great, big, merciful heart on a wicked man and love that wicked man or woman and then make him perfect, which he will do. So the objection. He says he comes to Peter. What does Peter say? Does Peter like what's happening? And the answer is no, Peter does not like what's happening. And this is very characteristic of what Peter has been like the whole time. So what does Peter say? Lord, do you wash my feet? Not a bad question. Jesus says, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Should, Peter should say, okay, you can wash my feet. And what Peter says is strong language. Never shall you wash my feet. You cannot wash my feet. No. And what he says is just like what I've experienced, and I know you must have experienced too, that is the problem that we have down deep in our own souls, is that we feel just like Peter. We have the same objection. No, it's not right for you to forgive me of my sins. We know the world around us is presumptuous, and they say God is love, and so it doesn't matter if I sin. Who cares? Because he's love, and he'll forgive me, whatever. We don't want to be like them, so we don't want to be presumptuous and trample his grace. Hebrews has got a lot of warnings to say about that, and we should heed them. But it's not presumptuous to know that you're sinful and still come. And that's what Peter can't do. It's like when Jesus told him, I'm going to go die on the cross, right after Peter had said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's the same word. Peter says here, never shall you wash my feet. It's the same thing. By no means. It shall never happen to you. Strong language, like God forbid it. Never. He hates the idea of that. And so when I was talking to Tim Kane, the guy we prayed for this morning who lives in San Diego, and he was talking about Peter, and he said, so Peter's doing this the whole time. And when it's time for Jesus to be crucified, Peter gets out his sword and he cuts off an ear. He's just rebelling against the idea that he could have a suffering, lowly, meek Messiah. And if you're going to embrace Jesus, it's got to be this one who's humble and lowly. You've got to be able to stomach him like Peter couldn't. Every day, not just when you become a Christian. So are you, every day, comfortable with him serving you? If not... I relate to you because that's hard to do. But it's the only way that he's honored and glorified. And it's the only way he says, we'll see in a minute, that you can have any part with him is to let him wash you. And the way I think to fix the problem 
is to look at him as he does things like wash feet and love sinful people and die on a cross and be... My wife and I were on vacation and John Piper used the word about Jesus. I just find him so compelling. He said, this is why I'm a Christian because I find him compelling. There's nobody like him. Abimelech is not interesting. He's just like every other man. Jesus Christ is the most compelling person there has ever been. You heard the sermon by Jonathan Edwards a while back if you were here during Christmas time. I can't remember the exact title, but it had to do with a conjunction of diverse excellencies, meaning how can he be lion and lamb at the same time? This is like what this is. This, that's what John 13 is about. He knew this, 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 and this, and he washed their feet. That's the point. That's what he's trying to get at here. So what's got to happen for us is we've got to set our heart on him and find him compelling. And then more and more, we'll see that he's okay with washing our feet and he wants to and there's no other way. And we'll start letting him do it. That's the only way it can happen. So foot washing. To help you get your mind around the the discomfort that Peter probably felt, imagine that I have a chair next to me. And all these people are here, and you have to come walk up here now and sit in the chair. And then you're going to take your shoes off. And we're all just going to watch. Not for shame purposes. And then Jesus is going to bodily come in here. He's not. He's risen. But he's going to come, and he's going to get down on his knees and scrub your feet. You can see how that would make Peter very uncomfortable. It's like people have said, imagine if the whole world could see every thought you've thought today. How very uncomfortable that would make you. It's the same idea. When Jesus washes your feet, it's plain, you're dirty. And when Jesus dies on the cross for you and you say, I'm a Christian, Jesus died for my sins. That's like saying, I'm so dirty. Look at me. I'm filthy. I need him. He shouldn't love me, but he does. That's who we're talking about. Okay, the best words for me in the Bible in the past five months are verse eight when he says, and I've already said them, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Those are sweet words because when I get out of my job at five o'clock and I go and I sit down in my car and I can breathe for a minute, and I'm not so busy and I think about my day and how I've been relatively prayerless all day and then I start to feel guilty and the arrows start to come and I remember maybe I was not a very good listener to my coworker who I want to believe the gospel so bad, and I could have loved her better. And I just didn't have a very good day. Or I think about how I had a great chance to share the gospel with another coworker, and I clammed up. And I'm sitting in my car, and accusations come, and you're sitting in your car. What do you do? And the words, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me, can give you life. When you see the Son of God acting the way that He acts and loving you the way that He loves you, when you're dirty and sinful, you're free. That's what freedom is. You can love Him. You can say, oh, yes, I'm coming. I trust you even so you can cleanse me. That's what this is all about. So I want you to know, I've said before, I've hinted at it, that washing feet isn't about dirt and feet. It's about the cross of Jesus Christ. It's right before the cross. Tim Kaine, the guy I mentioned before, said, Jesus is essentially saying, Peter, if you can't let me wash your feet, you certainly can't let me die on a cross for all your sins. He's preparing them. He's showing them. Because in a little while, it's going to look like what Jesus is doing on the cross is not voluntary. But he said it is. He said, no one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to pick it up. One of the reasons I think I believe that he washed their feet is so that it would be really obvious that when he does die on the cross, he's illustrating it's voluntary. Just like it's voluntary for me to wash your feet. He died voluntarily. Here's here's what happened on the cross. God... Simply, God, like a credit card, 
credited my sins and your sins to Jesus Christ. Micah in prayer meeting quoted First Peter said he bore our sins in his body. There was something bodily that happened to him. Bore our sins in his body on the cross. So nails in hands, thorn on head, bare body, just like he took off his towel when he washed their feet. Bare body, dying for sins. And when he died, Romans 6 makes it sound like he went down into the grave and the sins just stayed down in there. And then three days later, bodily, the man, Jesus, his heart started pumping blood and his brain was functioning and he was alive again. And the sweetest news of the gospel is that he's still alive. He didn't die again. In fact, Romans 6 says, he will never die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. He's still alive. The man who washed feet is alive again. And he can wash your feet. That's what he wants to do. Even now, he, can, he has all authority. He said in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go make disciples. And one of the sweetest things about that is, with all his authority, what does he want to do? He wants to forgive sinners of their sins. So the Bible does have a response. What do you do when you hear the things about Jesus that are true? And the Bible words are repent and believe. That's what the apostles kept saying after Jesus was raised from the dead. They said you should repent, believe. And that means that you Turn away from your sins. You've heard it before. But what is it to believe? Is it to do something so that then God will love you? Dave Dacus said to me one time when we were roommates, something that has stuck with me and really helped me. And here's what it is to be a Christian. And here's what it is to become a Christian. He said, he heard it from another source, I believe. But he said, here's how you live the Christian life. You fight to receive. You just... I've got to just keep receiving from him. You don't do anything. Because First John 1 says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So to become a Christian, this is what you do. You just receive from Jesus the forgiveness of his sins. And know that he can do it because your sins are paid for when he died on the cross and when he rose from the dead. That's how you become a Christian. That's what God wants for you. That's God's will for your life. That's why you were made. That's why you exist, is for that. So I said before, we were going to focus on verse 1 through 8, and we're almost finished. I've got a few words of application. Generally, pendulum swings, what I call them, I've heard people call them that, are just so bad for us. The one I mentioned before is the world says God is love so I can live however I want. So we as a church tend to think, well, we really don't want to be like them and we know that's not true and we're right. That's not true and we don't want to be like that. But we come all the way over here so that we start feeling like, well, now that I'm a Christian, I've got to have my act together and if I mess up, it's certainly not true that God doesn't care about my sins and I can live however I want. So what now? And you start slipping into self-condemnation. Guilty, 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 guilty. Those pendulum swings are just destructive and there's just countless of them. So as you live the rest of your life, look out for that kind of stuff. Start seeing things that don't seem to match up with the Bible and think, why are we all thinking that? Why do we say that? And a lot of times, I, I believe you can trace it back to something like that. Pardon me. I mentioned before conviction versus condemnation. This has been one of the most helpful things for me in my Christian life, and it's so relevant to the text today. How do you know if what you are experiencing tomorrow at 3 o'clock is conviction or condemnation? This is for Christians. How do you know which one it is? I guess this can be for non-Christians too. Is there a litmus test that we can know? Because sometimes we feel really bad about our sin and we can start to work work up in ourselves that we are kind of righteous because, man, look how bad I feel about this. But that may just be self-condemnation, which is the same as self-righteousness. How do you know which one it is? How can you tell practically, daily, ground level, 
tomorrow, today, this afternoon? What do you do? How do you know? What self-condemnation does for you is it does not let you draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. It makes you take your sin and not feel like or believe that Jesus can wash you and will and wants to make you clean. It makes you feel like you can't come to him because you feel like if you could have only done better, then you could come. But that's self-righteousness. That's condemnation, self-condemnation, and it's not of God, and you should reject it. And what you do when you have self-condemnation is you look at the Lord Jesus and his free forgiveness of sins, and you say, here's what conviction is. Oh, I hate my sin. And it can make you weep. And then you still say, and I believe that you have forgiven me of all of my sins, and that you love me wholeheartedly, and that I'm in Christ Jesus. That's conviction. And they're different. They're not the same. And they can cripple you. Self-condemnation can cripple you. Last, what what you call what Jesus did here in John 13 is humility. It means Chase prayed it in in our prayer service this morning. He said Jesus didn't have a me. There was no self. He wasn't about himself. A great verse that parallels this is Matthew 20, 28. It says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's humility. That's what that means. And there's an excellent quote that I'm going to read to you. It's about a page long from Andrew Murray in his book, Humility. You can read it. It's a great book. Mr. Rick taught me that I should read it slow, not fast. I told him I read it through in a single day and I was, because I was excited because it was great. And he was like, no, (laughs) <laughs> no, don't do that. What are you doing? You don't, read it slow. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. Here it is. And thinking about our own humility. Let all teachers of holiness, whether in the pulpit or on the platform, and all seekers after holiness, meaning do you want to be sanctified and obey God, whether in the closet or in the convention, take warning. There is no pride so dangerous because none so subtle and insidious as the pride of holiness. It is not that a man ever actually says or even thinks, keep away, I am holier than you. No, indeed, the thought would be regarded with abhorrence. We know that, right? But there grows up all unconsciously a hidden habit of soul which feels complacency in its attainments and cannot help seeing how far it is in advance of others. It can be recognized, not always in any, self, or in any special self-assertion or self-laudation, meaning you don't say it, but simply in the absence of that deep self-abasement, which cannot but be the mark of the soul that has seen the glory of God. Job 42, Isaiah 6. It reveals itself not only in words or thoughts, but in a tone a way of speaking of others in which those who have the gift of spiritual discernment cannot but recognize the power of self. Even the world, with its keen eyes, notices it and points to it as proof that the profession of a heavenly life does not bear any specially heavenly fruits. Oh, brethren, let us beware. Unless we make with each advance in what we think holiness, the increase of humility our study, meaning unless as you become more sanctified, you are also becoming much more humble. We may find that we have been delighting in beautiful thoughts and feelings, in solemn acts of consecration and faith, while the only sure mark of the presence of God, the disappearance of self, was all the time lacking. Come and let us flee to Jesus and hide ourselves in him until we be clothed upon with his humility. That alone is our holiness. So we can examine ourselves and see where we're prideful. One way it can show up is the way he mentioned that you talk about other people or even other churches, you know. There's, I mentioned before, a lot of folks say things like God is love and it doesn't matter. It's a classic example, whether or not I sin, but I mean, shouldn't it break our hearts when there's churches scattered across Memphis that preach false gospels and spread lies about God and who he is and what he's like? There's, there's righteous anger, and that's okay. But we can kind of slide into feeling like we got it all figured out, you know? Like, 
referring the word solid church. It's kind of a dangerous word because if you start to view your own church as a solid church and other people as less than solid church, you're doing exactly the same thing that Andrew Murray was just warning us about. Like you've got a step up on other folks and it's so dangerous. So what do we do about that? And the answer is, even when you're convicted about your own lack of humility, Jesus still says to you, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. So you bring even those kind of sins. The way you compare, maybe you compare your own sanctification with your spouse, with other church members, or anything like that. What do you do with that? You let him wash you, and you say, I believe that you died for that sin also. A few more things and we're done. Practical applications. You might try physically washing the feet of another person. There's no law that says that you must and you shouldn't feel guilty if you didn't or have never. But you might try it. It's a way to identify with the Lord Jesus and see what it feels like to wash another person's feet. When you're trying to think how is humility practically carried out? This is, I've moved on to the next point. How is it practically carried out? What do I do? How do I, I need some guidance. We need tracks to run on, okay? I think the most, one of the most helpful verses is Philippians 2, 3. It says, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. You can't do that unless you're changed, like we talked about before. But that's a, excellent verse that you might memorize and try to put into practice when you think about a good example for me we have a brand new baby she's two weeks old she's very small and she wakes up in the middle of the night and she cries because that's what babies do and of course my wife is nursing her and so I can't participate in that and so she gets up more than I do to take care of her to feed her which is right I'm getting to be okay with that. But there's always that moment, you know, sometimes they don't need to eat. They're just a little fussy. They're just a little aggravatable. And I could probably rock her back to sleep just as good as my wife could. Maybe better. (laughs) I'm just kidding. She's back there listening to me. (laughs) But anybody could do it, okay? And so you're laying there in the bed, and for a minute, you could just wait and see if she'll get up. But that's selfish. So, how does the verse apply? Why did I say that? Philippians 2.3, With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. So, get up as fast as you can to make sure she gets to stay in the bed. Or, I had another brother say to me recently that when they had had their first child, his goal was to do everything except for nursing the baby. So that the wife didn't have to do anything except for nurse the baby. That was it. That was his goal. That is Christ-like service and humility. I'm going to make sure she only has to do that. And if I could do that, I would probably do it too, but I just can't. So I'm going to do everything else. That's humility. And it just sounds like such a daunting task. One thing Cassie and I talked about, my wife's name's Cassie, one thing we talked about recently is when, and I felt really hopeless before, because before, when, I, when you first become a Christian and you know you're supposed to serve other people and you know you're supposed to be selfless, but you just kind of don't want to do it. And there's that, you all know it, that awful battle in the soul where it's like, ought to, you know, I should. I know I'm supposed to. I just don't really want to. I hate that feeling. You need to know that I believe because of the word of God, not because I've got it mastered, but because of the word of God, that that battle changes. Scriptures say that you can be renewed in the spirit of your mind, which is to say, it's not like you just obey more often and it's always miserable and you hate doing it. Cassie keeps repeating, his commandments are not burdensome. 
God will change your heart so that you want to serve selflessly. But to bring it full circle, the only way it happens is when Jesus is washing your feet and you're tasting what it's like and you just worship him for that. So if you put it in order, you know Jesus Christ in a way where he just selflessly serves and serves and serves and you don't deserve a drop of it. And that does something to you, just like it did something to the disciples. Peter said, oh, wash my hands and my head, wash me all over. So we've said a lot of things to end. Here's the the one thing, if you could take anything away from today's sermon. Let Jesus Christ wash your feet every day. Especially when you feel like you don't deserve it. Let him bleed and die on a cross when you're wicked. Even in your lowest moment, when you've been real wicked, like the kind of sins you don't want to confess to people because they're not so honorable. Those kind of private, shameful sins. Then, let him cleanse you by his blood. Trust him. His great big heart is different than our heart. He can love you then. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. They say often, and they should say, that anybody who doesn't have, or who has not forsaken all known sin should not take the Lord's Supper. And that's true. That comes out of Corinthians. Because you eat and drink judgment upon yourself. And we've said before, and I think it needs to be said again, that doesn't mean that you've been good. It means, you know, you've not been good. You've not obeyed. You're guilty. You're worthy of not being loved. And when you come up here, you're saying, you can wash my feet. You still love me. I believe. Let's pray. God, we praise you for Jesus Christ, the kind-hearted, meek, lowly King of the universe who rules with mercy and kindness. Who you love, you love to watch him in his humility. When he died, it was the most wonderful thing you had ever seen. The glory of God displayed in its maximum color brightness, fullness, the meek, lowly, all-powerful Son of God, loving people who were not lovable and satisfying justice. We praise you for him. We again put all of our hope in him for today and forever for the forgiveness of our sins. We love you, Lord. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.